uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. You see, it all starts with a baby, we'll say, at the age of six months. And the mother says, boo, and scares the hell out of the baby, gives it the hiccups, and then the baby giggles. There's its first moment of fear. Later on, it's on a swing, getting higher and higher, and catching its breath when it goes too high. And so it goes. We all enjoy, shall we say, putting our toe in the cold water of fear. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side, as always, in the command center, and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. And on this episode of Planet 8, we'll be talking about the master of suspense, the one and only Alfred Hitchcock. Straight away, let's kick it over to Chief Engineer Bob for a few words on the master. Well, thank you. Uh, Yeah, Alfred Hitchcock, one of my favorite directors. I think a lot of people's favorite directors. He uh, definitely had a larger-than-life personality as well as physique. (laughs) And uh, he was born Alfred Joseph Hitchcock. On August 13th, 1899, in Leytonstone, London, England. His first job in cinema was in 1919, at the age of 20, designing title cards for silent movies. He made his directorial debut on a film called The Pleasure Garden in 1925, and his first successful film came in 1927 with The Lodger, A Story of the London Fog which helped to shape the thrillers of today. After a few more films, David O. Selznick, a big producer, studio owner in Hollywood, persuaded him to come over from England to Hollywood in 1939. His first picture in America was Rebecca in 1940. The film won the Oscar for Best Picture, and Hitchcock was nominated for Best Director. From there, his career took off, and he would go on to direct some of the greatest movies in motion picture history, until his death on April 29th, 1980, a career that spanned about 50 years. Wow. And yeah, in addition to film, and we're not going to get too far into television, but he did uh, host and direct and write episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, 267 episodes that ran for 10 years from 1955 to 1965. And in fact, from 1962 to 65, they went from a half hour to an hour, and it was then called the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. And uh, yeah, he would come on in the beginning and introduce the episodes, take a few swipes at at the sponsors and the commercials, and uh, just basically became... At the time, as big a television personality is like Rod Serling or anyone to follow. Yeah, you know, I, I know we're not going to talk about the TV show today, but I did watch a couple of episodes because, believe it or not, I'd never seen any uh, before. I know he was a producer on the show. I don't know if he wrote 
or you know how involved he was with the episodes. But and I didn't most certainly I didn't watch ten years worth of episodes. But the two or three that I picked out just didn't match that Twilight Zone. Um, although he lasted longer than both Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, so kudos to Mister Hitchcock. Well, can you say? Well, again, you know his stuff was more thriller than sci-fi or horror or monster yeah yeah well he was definitely a a personality Uh, you know you see the the spielbergs and george lucas now and and they don't really have like a a huge um personality per se in the media i mean alfred hitchcock he had the tv show he he did cameos in almost all his films i mean that was the thing you watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie and wait for his cameo to show up. Well, see, he also would stand up in front of the camera for his trailers yeah. and talk about mm-hmm. the movies, much like uh, William Castle did as well. Yeah, that's a good right. point. Well, he was really that first director that people recognized, right? I mean, right. we talk about like Spielberg and Lucas and all these guys now, but before Hitchcock, I don't think the general public really took any notice of directors and producers and people who made movies per se they knew actors and actresses but i don't think they really recognized directors but like you're saying hitchcock had this big personality he had his cameos in the films and he also he just had such a style to his movies even though he tried different things in all the films because like you can watch different films of his and there will be different techniques he employs there will be a different feel to things the only thing i think that really seems to be consistent is like the suspense element but um he didn't shy away from embracing new things in his movie making but he you know you knew what you you kind of knew what you were going to get if you went to a hitchcock movie true oh uh, yeah and i was reading um well I'll, I'll talk about one technique in one of the first movies I watched, but I was also reading about Vertigo and just the effect in Vertigo, which was very simple, but very effective was when Jimmy Stewart would like look down a staircase or look off a building and you'd get that weird Vertigo shot. And all it was, was they were physically pulling the camera back while zooming in at the same Mm -hmm. time. So you had like the camera going in one direction, the zoom going in the other direction, and that created that sort of dizzying effect of, you know, what you would feel if you're, you know, up at a large height looking down and uh, worked really well, even though, like I say, it was a very simple technique. Oh, absolutely. And you 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 have to give... Oh, go ahead, Walker. Oh, I was just going to say, and you see people use that in films and TV shows and things all the time now. Even to this day, I, I was going to say, you know, this this guy, he was making films before any form of CGI. I was watching some, uh, it was a news uh, program, and even something like, um, what was the, the uh, Rocky movie? It was uh, Apollo's, oh, Creed. Even that movie has like effects and CGI shots to tighten up a person's face or to remove a shadow or to, you know, do whatever. The the industry has become so reliant on computers to to edit and and do effects and stuff. And here's Alfred Hitchcock, like Bob said, with Vertigo. One of the first movies I saw of his was uh, The Rope or Rope. Oh, yeah, The Rope. Yeah, and and he would just like zoom in before he he cut the shot, and then he'd like kind of pull out when he reloaded the film in the camera, just so it could be this continuous you know piece of film that you're watching the action take place, and almost it made you feel like it was in real time. 
Well, yeah, Rope, that was, like I said, that was one of the ones I was going to talk about. And uh, we watched that. And yeah, it looks like a single, well, it is a single camera, but it looks like just one continuous shot from beginning to end. And mm-hmm. what he had done, you could get, they said about, uh, I think it was 10 minutes mm-hmm. on a roll of film back then. And he had this one process where he could double up and get about 20 minutes. So he had to basically do like four film changes, film canister changes during the film. And he had a technique to blend them together so you couldn't tell where the cuts were. Now, when watching it towards the end, I did notice one like jump cut, but the rest of it is practically seamless. And it does, it takes place in like one apartment. It's basically this couple that uh, these two guys that I think it's kind of implied during the film that they're gay. But I mean, back then, you couldn't come out and say it. But uh, the one basically commits murder. They hang a guy and they um, or strangle a guy and they put him in a chest in the apartment. Mm -hmm. And then this guy, thinking that he's got they've gotten away with the perfect murder, decides to have a, a party and have everybody over while this guy is in the chest. And it's actually Jimmy Stewart who uh, figures out what's going on and, you know, gets suspicious. But again, you have people coming in and going out and different people talking and going back and forth. And it's all just one camera going between zooming in, zooming out. Uh, just, you know, amazing as far as directing. Yeah. And, and like the chest is in the middle of the room and there's all these like almost moments, you know, and that's part of the suspense of the film. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, he basically, I think in an interview, he just said he did it just to see if he could. <laughs> he was watching a play, you know, and in plays, you know, you, it's seamless, except for you have an intermission or whatever. But, you know, you're watching this thing just go on. They don't do multiple takes. They have to do it live in one shot. And uh, so he wanted to stage it like a play and use one camera and just follow everything and uh it's an amazing film if you uh get a chance to see it oh yeah absolutely um i'm not sure if they ever if anyone ever tried to remake that movie i know there's been like umpteen remakes of of psycho but uh we'll we'll get to that Uh, film later i mean i was reading where someone had done a similar thing with like one camera and all that but you know video digital you can run a camera as long as you want you know you can get two three hours on a on a file so it's not it's not as difficult as having to deal with film changes and all that true true that's definitely a, a movie to check out you know, one one movie I, I can remember that had that type, not through the whole movie, but through one scene would be The Kingsman, where he's uh, going through the church and he's, uh, you know, basically shooting people and stabbing people and everything else. And it just looks like one continuous camera shot through the entire scene with no cuts. And, you know, again, there are cuts, but, you know, they're, hit, they're kind of hidden and disguised and, you know, much like rope. Yeah, definitely. Good film to check out as well. But, um... I don't know what what's another film either of you guys uh, really like. Well, I kind of I can the ones that I watched I kind of put in or in date order, mm. and like the next one up because Rope was 1948. The next one up that we watched was 1954 was Rear Window. Ooh. I watched that too. That's a good one, and that's an amazing movie just for the fact that it all takes place on that one set. And you've got the set with everybody's windows and all the actors, you know, doing their things in, you know, in the, in the windows, Miss Lonely Heart and the songwriter and everybody else. <laughs> and then you've got the set 
of Jimmy Stewart's apartment with the big window that overlooks mm-hmm. the other set. And the entire movie takes place basically in his apartment and things are happening out there, but it's all done, you know, f- like from his perspective. Yeah, that's it's- a pretty amazing set when you look at it. You, mm-hmm. you know, at first you kind of like, oh, is, is it a real building? And then you, you realize, no, it's... It's a set. There's a backdrop and everything, but it's still a very, very impressive set. And to think of how they must have had to coordinate all those people, you know, in those, they're not, you know, they're sets as well, uh, all doing stuff at the same time. Sets in uh, the sets. Right. <laughs> yeah, they've got they've got the apartment building or whatever across the courtyard. They've got the courtyard, and then they've got a little alley towards the side that goes out mm-hmm. and you see the street with traffic going by and yeah, with the know. camera from his apartment they can zoom in zoom out look around and you know just follow things within that other set it reminds me bob you mentioned rope he saw a play it's almost like watching a play as a viewer you just you know you're jimmy stewart or with him watching all the action take place out in that courtyard in the other apartment well, it makes you vulnerable, just like Jimmy Stewart, right? Because he's sitting there with his busted leg and he can't really do anything. And you're sitting there as the viewer, kind of not able to do anything either as all this stuff is going on around you. And especially the activity with Raymond Burr, where he suspects that he's killed his wife, but Jimmy Stewart can't take any action other than to try to get other people to do something about it. There, there's also, at least for me, was a heightened sense of uh, maybe a little more adrenaline pumping because it, it's a voyeuristic um, mm-hmm. kind of film and not in a bad way or, or uh, you know, but um, it, it's like, yeah, you're you're looking into people's lives that you probably have no business looking into. But what's Jimmy to do? He He has a broken leg and, you know, that, all he can do is look out that window and it. Well, yeah, he was a he was a photographer, right? And uh, he broke his leg basically trying to shoot a, a car crash at a race, and you know there was he got a little too close to the crash. But he has <laughs> he has his leg in a cast. He's in a wheelchair. He's got his nurse that comes over to check on him. He's got his girlfriend Grace Kelly, who now the interesting sort of subplot in the movie is she's trying to get him to propose and he doesn't think that she can hack his lifestyle of living out of a bag and going from country to country and you know roughing it you know out in the wilderness to take these photos and things but as the movie goes on it's almost like the people in those windows kind of reflect aspects of their relationship and of course grace kelly ends up going across the courtyard and going into uh, Raymond Burr's apartment and, uh, you know, taking all these chances, which I think towards the end kind of convinces him that, hey, you know, she's she can stick her neck out when she needs to. Yeah, <laughs> it was very suspenseful. Uh, you know, there were little comedy bits here and there, but uh, it was a good and And where was the uh, Hitchcock uh, cameo in that one? Oh, the piano the uh, yeah, he's musician. In songwriter's uh, apartment during his party. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which was one floor up from uh, what, Miss Torso, which was kind mm-hmm. of his one big voyeuristic moment. Yeah, those were kind of curiosities, but then there was Miss Torso. Well, and then it turned out she had a, um, I don't know, boyfriend or husband who was this kind of tiny soldier, a little nebbishy guy. Um, yeah. But she was apparently very infatuated with. So it was like, a, you know, 
there was this situation where he was kind of judging all of them at the beginning, you know, taking them sort of like on face value, like, oh, this is who this person is, this is who this person is. But by the time you get to the end of the story, you know, you can see the nuance with each person or couple or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean, he has his story and he even tells it to uh, his nurse and Grace Kelly. He's got a story for everybody out there. Now, whether or not that story is correct, like obviously mm-hmm. with her, it wasn't. Yeah, you know, with Raymond Burr and his wife, it was. But uh, yeah, I mean, there are definitely a lot of different personalities. The husband and his wife that sleep out on the banister or out on the uh, balcony, and the, yeah. the woman, one Probably woman eat. with the dog that like lowers the dog down in the courtyard mm-hmm. in a basket and lets it do his business. It jumps back in, pull it up, and uh, yeah, there was a. And well, you know, we mentioned the songwriter that uh, was trying to have a career, and the newlyweds that uh, the bride, the bride was like wearing him out through the whole movie. <laughs> He'd come out to the window and open up the shade to get a breath of air, and she'd be calling him back in. <laughs> well, you know, Hitchcock had that little uh, bit of comedy that he'd throw in there. Well, he always had some innuendo, some you know, and this is a time where. You weren't supposed to talk about sex. No. You weren't supposed to show anything. And he always had a little bit of raciness in his his films. Yeah, he said he always tried to push, especially in England, they were a lot stricter. But he'd always try to push the uh, people that were rating the films and commenting on what he should cut or not cut and things like that. What he could get away with. Mm-hmm. Great, great film. If you guys haven't seen it, definitely uh, check out Rear Window. Now, one movie that I thought was really good, one of my favorites, is 1955's To Catch a Thief with Mm. Cary Grant and Grace Kelly. But it's just an amazing film because uh, you can almost see it as a precursor to the Bond films because he was kind of a thief on the Riviera and uh, he was retired. But there was somebody in the Riviera stealing jewels basically in his old style so of course everyone thinks that he is the is the person who's stealing all these jewels and coming out of retirement and uh just some some great scenes uh a lot of really great chemistry and uh like i say as definitely as you watch this movie you're like man that he Cary Grant could have been Bond. I think he was even up for Bond at one point. Oh, wow. And uh, before Sean Connery. But um, yeah, it was it's definitely because this is also, you know, you talk about rope and you talk about rear window where everything's kind of claustrophobic and taking place in somebody's apartment. And this one has sweeping vistas and, you know, wide angle shots of the Riviera and everything. So it was definitely total opposite contrast to the other two films. It was one of the first um, Hitchcock films where he he basically got out on location and, uh, and took advantage of all the scenery. Oh, yeah, definitely. Very... Very well filmed. Great story. Great, great actors. I mean, who doesn't love Grace Kelly and, and uh, Cary Grant? I mean, you get actors like that of that caliber and uh, Hitchcock to direct. What do you get? To catch a thief. To catch a thief. And then I kind of, we went to like 1958 to watch Vertigo. You, you were traveling the timeline, weren't you, Bob? <laughs> well, you know, sacred timeline. There were some. There were some that are kind of ingrained in my mind, mm-hmm. and then there's others that I hadn't seen in a long time, like To Catch a Thief or Rope, where I had to kind of go back in and, and watch again. And 
Mm-hmm. But I yeah, I just remembered. Yeah, I really I really liked this one, and uh, I'd go back to it. But um, yeah, I, I, did you, have either of you guys seen Vertigo? Oh I, yes, oh. I rewatched it for this, and I I can see that it's well crafted, but I uh, I don't know. I I I find it almost a little too disturbing to watch, just because the the Jimmy Stewart character, his obsession, just really. Irritates the crap out of me. Well, well, is it or isn't it? Because Debbie and I were talking about it after we watched it, and you know, basically, it's uh, Jimmy Stewart and Kim Novak, and Kim Novak plays those two roles just perfectly. You know, two contrasting roles. But um, the question is, did Jimmy Stewart search out this girl, see that she looks like Kim Novak, and did all that to change her, or? Being a detective, did he suspect something, found her, and had to put her through that so that he could find out that it was, in fact, her? Like, did he know all that time that it was her and had to change her to prove it? I didn't, interesting. Get, I didn't get the impression that he knew initially. I because like he, he takes was, her back to that bell tower where she initially committed suicide, supposedly. Yeah, but that was after he found the, the necklace. Right. I think that kind of cinched it. But I think he had a... Because I don't think he was just going out and stalking women to find someone that looked like her. I think he had a motive to do that. I think he thought something was fishy going on. Because, you know, for those who hadn't seen it, spoiler alert, you know, she basically runs up to the top of the the tower, clock bell tower, and uh, her boyfriend is up there. And the whole plot was to kill his wife. So he basically... She had dressed and looked like his wife as she ta- he tosses his wife out the window. So it's murder and not suicide. And then they hide in the bell tower until everyone clears out and then they're free to do what they want to do. But um, then again, you know, he's free to he's now taking care of his wife again. The perfect murder. But like I say, Jimmy Stewart was a, a detective. So I'm thinking that he uh, he searched it out. He followed the clues and had to prove it. So it's not quite as creepy as maybe it was made out to be. So even back then, I don't think Hitchcock would have portrayed something like that. But yeah, who knows? Maybe I don't know. I mean, and it goes back to like Hitchcock did seem to have his own obsession with these sort of icy blonde women. You know, we see the same type of actress repeatedly in his films in the later years, anyway. Um, and then there's, and we don't have to get into all the stories about his treatment of some of these women, um, especially like Tippi Hedren. But um, certainly, he may have been playing out some of his own control fantasies in some of the films. Um, but yeah, that one Vertigo is is definitely disturbing for the the way Jimmy Stewart's character, uh, his obsession plays out. And maybe you're right. I don't know. I didn't. I certainly didn't read it that way. Um, as I was watching it, but maybe I mean, it just kind of hit me this time around. And Debbie kind of, you know, she agreed. It was like, okay, you know, maybe he did know something. Maybe he was out, you know, trying to find her. And obviously, she's changed her looks, changed her makeup, changed her hair. So, you know, is this really her? Let's find out. What about you, Larry? Well, I thought Jimmy was a little freaky deaky in this one. <laughs> <laughs> but let me just say, I, 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 I will rewatch it because this is one of the ones that I love and I watch at least once a year. Um, I'm, I'm going to go in and, and watch it again and, and see if I get that take on it. I will say 
Barbara Bell Geddes. I love her character in this um, film. Mm. Um, you know, other than this movie, I only know her from Dallas, and I know she's been in a lot of other films, but I just love that she had this, you know, wonderful career and all this insight. And, and she would talk to him, you know, as a friend would talk to a friend. Um, it was great. I, I love the rapport between those two characters in this film. So uh, that actually brings us to 1959 is North by Northwest, which for me is like one of my favorite movies of all time, bar no genre. And it's just the ultimate story of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, multiple <laughs> times. Um, yeah, this is one of my favorite films too. Uh, Jazz had never seen it before and we we were watching it and... Um, you know all the beats work all you know the excitement and the uh the comedy the the uh you know oh no moments um the, the, one of the parts in this movie that i love is Cary grant getting drunk and tipsy and then trying to convince everyone <clears throat> of what happened um well yeah the amazing thing you know, the storyline for it is basically there's this fake spy that mm -hmm. uh this organization you know they basically book him into hotels and they do things to make it look like there's a real person there, but it's not, it's not a real person at all. And it's just to throw the, uh, the villains off the track of Eva Marie Saint, who is one of the spies that had infiltrated their organization and Cary Grant gets mistaken. They think he's the spy. And the more he goes in to try to prove that he isn't or find out what's going on, the more he ropes himself into into their suspicions. Like he'll go into the apartment or go into the hotel room where the spy supposedly is and he's looking around and the phone rings and he picks it up and it's and it's the one of the villains. Well if you're not this person, why are you in the in that hotel? Oh well, uh yeah. So, you know, as, as the movie goes on, then uh, they kind of have to recruit him and they staged his death scene where he confronts Eva Marie Saint and she shoots him. But um, it's just all the actors in there, just amazing. James Mason, even Martin Landau, pre-Mission Impossible, pre-Space 1999, plays one of the henchmen. And uh, yeah, it's for, for me, I just think it's an amazing movie. Yeah, it is. I, I love the uh, Mount Rushmore set um, yeah. also. I mean, I think that was like really well made and, and just, you know, the filming of it all um, with the real, you know, Mount Rushmore. Um, well, yeah, that was supposedly yeah, that, uh, Hitchcock you know, like saw Mount Rushmore and he had an idea of, you know, what if somebody were to crawl up uh, Lincoln's nose? <laughs> and he kind of, you know, he, he got a writer and he just kind of pitched that idea and the writer kind of ran with it. But that's why it kind of all ends up there on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, you know, uh, it was really interesting to see Martin Landau as a heavy. Um, you know, I'd seen him in Mission Impossible before I saw him in in this movie. And so it was really uh, it was really interesting. And, and you, you give the person credit because before there's any kind of typecasting here, they were playing these different roles in films, kind of like, um, um, oh, my God, uh, Dr. McCoy in Star Trek was DeForest Kelly. Kelly. Yeah, he was in Kelly. all the How Westerns before DeForest that, right? <laughs> but yeah, you're right, Bob. He, he played heavies in, in these Westerns and stuff. And you watch those and then, you know, as Dr. McCoy, it's it's a big difference. But um, no, the ending to this was great. Like I said, Jazz and I saw this and, and she just like thoroughly enjoyed it. So it, it 
you give credit, you know, something made back in the 50s still plays out well today, you know? Yeah, it's an amazing film. I'd say anyone who hasn't seen it, watch it. Oh, yeah, definitely. It takes place during the Cold War. I mean, all that spy and espionage stuff going on and, you know, the government tapping you on the shoulder to be a spy and do what's best for the country. That's right. All right. So, uh, you know, one year after that was Psycho. Back on the sacred timeline. <laughs> That's right. Then we come to... I'm, we're not doing every single movie, but I'm just, just throwing out the ones I kind of watched. Psycho, which I didn't watch, but it's kind of ingrained in my brain after years. Is it the acting, the directing, or the music that... Well... Bernard Herman actually, mm-hmm. you know, he, he also did music for uh, North by Northwest and To Catch a Thief and some of these other films. And of course, he did music for the Harryhausen movies. And you mm-hmm. know, I I love Bernard Herman, and and his his music is perfect for these types of suspense stories. And um, you know, I mean, look at what he came up for with uh, Psycho. I mean, that's classic film music that you know. It's about everybody oh. uh, recognizes. I, I never could really put my finger on what it was that was so iconic. And I was reading an, an article and, you know, to create the suspense, there's no percussion. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. And, and you know, I don't know if it's an innate human quality that, you know, we hear the beat of a drum or a heartbeat or something that just, you know, um, without that, it added to the suspense. Um, so if you get a chance to listen to the uh, score or the theme for uh, the Psycho film, there is no percussion. In any of the beats. Yeah. A lot of strings, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. A lot of strings, a lot of, you know. <laughs> Look, Bernard Herman, I'm, I'm with you, Bob. I mean, he's just iconic. Um, I was watching a documentary about um, Psycho. Oh, God. It, it gives the time, the, the name of the film is the time that the uh, shower sequence takes place. And I, I can't remember. I know there's a 17 in there. But anyway, uh, Bernard Herman, uh, we'll get into the birds later, but th- there was little or no music in the birds, but he did work right. on the chirps and the sounds uh-huh. that the birds made so that that was disturbing to viewers watching the film. Um, what? Bob well, I mean, yeah, the original never... Dracula had no music other than right. the, other than the uh, Swan Lake at the beginning. At the beginning. And again, right. that just keeps you in this kind of weird, creepy, gloomy yeah. you know, mood throughout the film. And, you know, that works the same with, with uh, the birds and, and Psycho's minimal. But, um, yeah, I mean, the whole reveal of Mother, you know, who Mother is at the end, you know, and the fact that, yeah, it's, he's the one doing these murders dressed as his mother. And, yeah, it's crazy stuff. Right. Uh, yeah. And I think, you know, what what was great for me uh, when I first saw this is it's almost like you're watching an entirely different film because, you know, she she's a, a secretary and she decides to not take the money to the bank and and she hightails it. And, you, and you're like, oh, my God, you know, is she going to get caught? The, you know, the cop looks at her funny. She buys a new car and goes to the Bates Motel and then Norman shows up with the knife and it's like now this movie has transitioned into a whole different and how ballsy was it to take your main actress in your movie and and kill her before the end of the film well not it's just before the end of the film it was like before the halfway point or before the one third way point you know very early in the film yeah I mean that that to me is is just such a good movie and I know there have been remakes um but they just never there was one where they it was in color, but they, and they actually filmed 
like dialogue and scene by scene. Exactly. It was like a mirror image of Hitchcock. It's yeah, so, it's like, why bother? More, yeah. It just, uh, I will, uh, you know, I will say that I, um, Anthony Perkins, um, unfortunately got typecast didn't do a lot uh after this but psycho 2 is a great sequel to psycho i don't know if either of you two saw yeah, that i have film. not seen that in decades yeah same yeah. here i i it was a good surprise ending at the end of that i haven't seen it for a bit but you know after psycho 3 and psycho 4 and norman's calling into like the hotline and for a radio station <laughs> kind of like, yeah, I did know. not see anything after two. <laughs> no, but I, I can't say enough good things uh, about Psycho. Uh, the way that uh, it ended is just iconic. You know, that, that shower scene is iconic. And we all know that it wasn't real blood in the shower, right? It was chocolate syrup. Chocolate syrup, yeah. Syrup. And you never see her naked. No, you don't. And you never see the knife going into her because of all these quick cuts and the way it was shot. True. And people were all people were all thinking about, you know, the naked woman in the shower and all the violence of, you know, the knife and all this. But uh, none of it was really actually shown. Well, and I mean, just the way that he filmed it, to be sure, it is a very violent uh, scene in the movie. But um, it, it it's just sticks with you. I mean, that music, the way that it, it ends, you know, just her eye. You know, in that shot, and and they were interviewing the the actress, and it's like, no, I had to really hold my eye open because again, there was no CGI back then. <laughs> and so. and then also, after doing Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, Vertigo, all these really vibrant Technicolor films for Psycho, he went back to black and white. That's true. Which I thought was well, an interesting choice. And he had a much lower budget. He was actually using what I had heard was that he used uh, TV, some of the TV production crew. From I heard his, that too. Yeah, from his uh, TV staff. And it, again, it was sort of a challenge for him to, you know, let's see if I can do this. Let's see if I can, you know, make this movie and make it successful and put these challenges to myself. Right. You know, we'll bring in a, a big name actress. Uh, you know, Janet Lee will bring her in and no one will expect that she will die early in the film. And then they won't, you know, they'll be completely unmoored. They won't know what to do. And that will be how he will, you know, grab and control the audience. And it worked brilliantly. So. Um, interestingly enough, too, the character of uh, Norman Bates was based on the Ed Gaines uh, real life. Uh, psycho murderer killer if you will um, who would skin his victims uh, starting with his mother and would um, make lamp shades and you know let, uh, use the skin for uh, um, he would dress up in them I believe he would dress up in them too but he had like skulls and things mm -hmm. like they, they'd used him as well for a basis of the chainsaw massacre right mm -hmm. And, and some other films, but... Uh, yeah, Hitchcock didn't go quite that far in Psycho. No. He, yeah, I don't think he could push the envelope that far. Thankfully, he did not. Well, you know, you already got incest going on, you know, a naked shower scene, so... <laughs> yeah, I, I will say this, too. I never got into the TV show that I think it was on TBS of The Young Norman, um, but apparently it was it was good. It lasted, a, what, two or three years. I heard it was good, but I, I never saw an episode of it. I yeah, I, I never I never got into it either. Um, 
But in any case, uh, any any other thoughts or comments on Psycho? I'm sure we could go on and on, actually. Cause Norman? 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 Give your mother a kiss. <laughs> less tongue, boy. Less... Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Sorry, that's for After Dark. <laughs> well, I guess moving on. That we can actually move on to the I'm, birds at this point. The birds. I the watched that birds. last night. What a good movie. In fact, uh, Lieutenant Debbie and I have been talking about making the trip out to Bodega Bay to scout out locations. And uh, we haven't had a chance. The pandemic hit and we kind of got sidelined, but still on the map or still on the agenda. Well, let, let me tell you, uh, Jazz and I uh, did go out to Bodega Bay um, during the pandemic, so we didn't do a heck of a lot. <laughs> But um, we did find the church, and you have to give whoever the scouting person was for the birds credit, because there's not a whole heck of a lot out in Bodega Bay uh, to look at or do other than a lighthouse, the beach, <laughs> the the I think it's a church that they use right. for the uh, school, hmm. and and it's not a church now. They they were renovating it. I, I think people live inside it, but yeah, I mean another iconic film um well there's also the uh the diner and the gas station and i've seen like behind the scenes where you know you have that shot aerial shot of the diner and the gas station yeah and you see the seagull come into frame yeah and that was basically a shot of an, the existing diner and gas station but everything around it was a matte painting huh and these are like seamlessly, you know, done. It's just amazing. You can't even tell because they have that shot and then they have the other shot where they have the aerial shot of the gas station burning. Mm-hmm. And I think both of those incorporate the matte paintings. I had I had read that. And, and true enough, when you go there, I mean, the gas station is now long gone, unfortunately. But uh, even the birds, I think Walt Disney animation helped like do the bird scenes, some of the bird scenes in the film. I mean, yeah. Well, I think I they're heard. originally trying to do like mechanical birds and things and just couldn't quite get it right. And they ended up like getting this guy with like trained birds and then they had yeah animated birds and... Mm-hmm. And what have you in there? No CG birds, though. No. I, I think CG. they had some rotoscoping, is what I had heard. Oh, really? <laughs> could be. Back to the rotoscoping. <laughs> it could be, but um, yeah, no, an amazing. I think it's a great film, and uh, I think the two ama- most amazing things about it is one: at the end, they they walk out, they get in the car, and they drive off. But you don't, you know, like films back in that day. You don't have like, all right, here comes the army. We're going to take these birds out or, you know, there's no resolution to it. Mm-hmm. The birds are still out there. Now, is it all contained on this island in Bodega Bay? Well, I guess it's supposed to be somewhere across from San Francisco, but is it, is it all contained on that island or is it happening all over the world? And then what caused it? There's no explanation of, of why these birds are doing what they're doing. Right. Right. It has a very apocalyptic feel to it. And the fact that there's no soundtrack, mm-hmm. that was the thing that was getting to me last night. There was no soundtrack. And it, I think it amps up the, uh, the tension, too, because you have nothing there to kind of cue you like, oh, things are okay now or, oh, things are getting more tense or whatever. It just feels kind of tense the whole time. It's, it reminds me a little of Night of the Living Dead where it's, it's, it has an almost documentary feel in it. There's no music. How am I supposed to feel? Right. Well, so much of our, our 
reactions to film really come from soundtracks. I mean, we've kind of talked before about, you know, how much of the success of something like the first Star Wars is due to that John Williams soundtrack, you know, propelling the action. And, you know, you watch a movie like this and there's no soundtrack and it it's, has a very unrelenting feel to it. You know, t- speaking about John Williams, we watched Family Plot last night, but unfortunately I kept dozing off. It was a long week. So I can't talk uh-huh. much about I can't talk much about Family Plot, but John Williams did the music for that film. Yeah, Bernard Herman and, and Hitchcock had a falling out. I can't remember what film it was, and the studio really pushed for Hitch to use it like a jazz. I say a jazz, and and he was like, okay, well, we'll do it temporarily. And Bernard Herman was working on music, and Hitch is like, actually, I like what the studio put together. And anyway, then. That went Bernard. There went Bernard Herman for Hitchcock films after that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, Family Plot was his last movie, and uh, yeah, John Williams did the score, and it was in like 1976, so it was like right in between Jaws and Star Wars. Well, and it's interesting because if you think about, Karen made a good point. Think about the Star Wars trailer that first came out, and it had like no John Williams score. I think it was like uh, Orson Welles <laughs> narrating or something like that, and and like you know, some classic music or think of like a film like Jaws with no, you know, Jaws theme. Here was this ballsy move to put out a film with no music. Like I said, Dracula, I don't know if they did it intentionally or they just didn't think, you know. Well, it was uh, right after the silent era. Yeah, it was like one of the first sound films. So they didn't, I don't think they even considered a soundtrack in there. And even like Frankenstein, it has some music, but very minimal. And and it works, but you know it. I don't know if. Well, in any case, I I think this is wonderful film with no music in it. Those birds, those chirps are very iconic. I mean, it's, it's kind of like if you think, well, the predator that made a very iconic sound that you know identified the the villain uh, of the film. Um, not, not to say that the birds were necessarily a, a, the villain of the piece, but, uh, you know, most certainly they were a menace. Uh, did either of you see the sequel to the birds that was put out like in the, the 90s? No. What? There was a sequel? There was a sequel and the director was so like ashamed, I guess he used the Alan Smithy um, title <laughs> for his name. Um, I thought the sequel called? to the birds, I thought the sequel to the birds was Cats. It was... <laughs> Out for revenge. (laughs) It was Birds 2, Land's End. uh, Oh, yeah, I heard of it. I never saw it. Made for television back in the 90s. Rick Rosenthal was the director's name. Oh, you outed him. Yeah, I outed him. Uh, Tippy had a a supporting role, but it wasn't the original character from from the first film. Um, I've only seen pieces of it. Uh, It wasn't a long week for me, Bob, but it was just a weak film, and I zoned out (laughs) (laughs) well i mean we did watch uh frenzy which was all about the necktie murderer man that was on my list i didn't get to frenzy i didn't get to marnie um i didn't get to uh family plot either yeah no i wanted to watch marnie and then we ended up uh we got kind of sidetracked but uh, Mm. we ended up going to the san jose giants game friday night i think that kind of took us out took us out of hitchcock they were playing the modesto nuts of all people <laughs> nuts. Modesto nuts. Nuts. Okay. Think of it as you will. Well, but, you know, uh, I, and I, I will, uh, I will say, uh, yeah. But again, the birds. The way that it ended to me was one of those perfect endings because was it over? Was it just beginning? Um, were the birds letting them get in the car? You know, 
to, to chase them another day. It's just, it's, it's a great film to end just like that. Yeah, did the birds let him get in the car because they knew they had set a trap down the road that we hadn't seen? You know, we don't know. And there, there's some really cool shots in that film. Um, of course, one of the ones that everybody remembers is when Tippy Hedren is waiting outside the school. And at first you see like three birds on the right. jungle gym. And then there's like six. And then all of a sudden you turn around and there's like 500, <laughs> you know, and that, that's just one of those ones you always remember. But then there's another really neat sequence he does where, you know, they're inside the diner and all hell is breaking loose outside. And the, the uh, guy at the gas station, the attendant, yes. gets hit by a bird in the head and he drops the gasoline. The gasoline runs down the street, right? It's it's like a, a cigarette. Yeah, the guy's smoking. They're all at the window going, don't, don't <laughs> drop the match. And he drops the match. And then they show her in sequence, like still shots of her face. And she's looking one way and she's got this, you know, terrified expression that he cuts to you know, the gasoline on fire. Then they cut back to her face moving slow. You know, it's moved now and she's looking another direction. Then they cut back to the gas, you know, on fire, almost at the gas station. And she's looking, you know, to her left now. And then the car explodes and then they show her gasping, you know, and it's like all still shots and as she progresses from like right to left. And it was just a really interesting technique that, yeah, uh, absolutely. you know, yeah. And like and like many small towns, they immediately start blaming her for everything. Like <laughs> right. she brought the birds. Outside <laughs> and uh, no, and uh, yeah, and just you know, it's another big outdoor film, but you get the claustrophobic feel because at one point she's stuck in that phone booth, and the birds are coming and running into the phone, you know, ramming the phone booth and right. breaking the glass and everything, and yeah, you know, she's trying to get I think at that point she's trying to get over to the diner but um, yeah you get that definite fear and sense of danger and claustrophobia of you know a lot of our listeners may not know what a phone booth is but <laughs> <laughs> they're very small and very claustrophobic yeah you know I will say I have a, a dear friend um, who is scared to death of birds and uh, we we work together so pre-pandemic we'd go you know walk some for, for lunch and Regardless if it was, you know, a pigeon or, or even like a smaller bird, if, if they flew by us or were on the ground, she'd scream, uh, you know, and I'm like, have you ever seen the bird? She's like, hell no. <laughs> so when, when they start flying around, do you start like singing that song the school children are singing when the uh, birds are gathering on the jungle gym? She, she would have no reference uh, <laughs> if, if I did, but I may start doing that. Um, yeah, it, it's it's uh, it made me appreciate the film more seeing how terrified someone can be. Because if you think about it, look, birds. I mean, what's so scary about birds? But you put a thousand of them together pecking at you. Well, it's almost like a zombie horde, right? One zombie, oh, yeah. no problem. 20 zombies. You better run. Um, well, I mean, the supporting cast, too. I mean, Suzanne Plachette plays a school teacher, yes. you know, and of course, she's hacked up by birds at one point. Fortunately, and uh, even, uh, even was it uh, Angela Cartwright? Oh, yeah. Or Veronica. Veronica Cartwright. Sorry. Veronica Cartwright. Yeah. Uh, she's in there one as one of the little kids. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I love the birds. And again, we'll, we'll get out to Bodega Bay sometime and check well, everything out. Well, I'm surprised that one time we visited the Pulcher Mansion, you didn't get a chance to go oot in a boot. Well, I mean, we, 
we got there in the nick of time. Remember, we got caught in traffic. So That's true. We were actually true. late at the Poultry Mansion. <laughs> so there was uh, no ootin' and a bootin'. <laughs> the good folks at Creature Features, um, if you guys haven't checked it out, Bob and I were guests. Unfortunately, the uh, interocitor wasn't working. We couldn't beam Karen uh, over to the mansion to talk with Vincent, uh, Tangela, and, uh, and Livingston. Uh, Livingston, that's right. Jonathan Livingston um, Siegel. Birds. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Bringing us back to Hitchcock. Yes. Any so. last films or comments we would like to make about the films of Alfred Hitchcock? Well, like I say, we watched Frenzy and Family Plot, but I mean, I think we uh, we covered the main, yeah. all the biggies. You know, one thing I, I heard when I was uh, watching this documentary was that when David O. Selznick, you know, lured... Hitchcock over to America, one of the things they talked about having Hitchcock do was make a film about the Titanic. And it never happened, but that would have been interesting. I really wonder what Hitchcock would have come up with. Probably would have been a much better film. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer prefer the Poseidon Adventure because it's the same outcome, but it's a whole lot shorter. But uh, we'll have to see if we can venture into another reality someday and yeah. watch Alfred Hitchcock's Titanic. Well, again, now that the timeline's split, who knows? That may exist out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's there somewhere. A variant right. Hitchcock. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there would have been some kind of a spy on board the Titanic, um, maybe a love interest, mm-hmm. possible murder, and then uh, mayhem ensues. <laughs> there you go. You just wrote the movie. <laughs> Um, he he was a very uh, iconic and uh, director. He had a distinct style. You know, you, you can say that about uh, like Spielberg comes to mind. Um, you know, he uh, he became kind of a celebrity in and of himself, uh, whether it was a combination of the TV show and the films or, or one or the other. Um, if you guys get a chance, check out some of those movies. I know um, there were a number of films I wanted to watch that we didn't get to, and we're going to find time and watch them um, over the next couple of weeks. So. I, I wanted to watch Strangers on a Train, but I didn't uh, I didn't have that in the collection, and I didn't end up watching it. 39 well, Steps would be another one. Viewers know that you know we, we don't make money off of this podcast, but we do spend it to watch these films. <laughs> <for you guys. laughs> We're spending money like crazy. To put this no, I, I had the Alfred Hitchcock masterpiece right. collection, and then a couple other uh, additional discs. But yeah, not uh, not enough that I can oh, watch man. all we, the ones know, that I want yeah, to see. I, we scour Hulu, HBO, Netflix, mm-hmm. Amazon, uh, Tubi. Um, there's all these other like little things out there that I'm discovering. I'm like, what the hell is Tubi? Or not to be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, I'm always the big supporter of physical media. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if there's a movie I like enough that I'll want to watch it more than once, I will buy it. Because, I don't know, somebody was just complaining about some movie that got yanked off of Netflix. And uh, they're like, oh, it's not on Netflix anymore. I was like, yeah, it's in my basement. I can watch it anytime I want. <laughs> yep. I still keep a lot of my blu-rays and stuff and and especially if somebody like shout factory is going to put out a really nice version of some film i like i'll dish out the bucks like i just did with king kong i think you guys did that too with the 76 kong yep sure did um you know i appreciate it when these guys will clean up a movie or or put some extra 
stuff on it than like they had the TV version of King Kong. So it was like, hey, this is nice. I'll, uh, I'll dish out some money for that. Well, plus you get the uh, commentaries and you get the bonus materials and all mm-hmm. these things that you don't get on Tubi or not Tubi or Netflix or Hulu or Flubby or Flubby or whatever's out there. Schlamazel. Uh, no, I, I I dish out the bucks too. I invested in the Blu-ray um, coming out in October of uh, uh, Kolchak, Night Stalker. Oh, I didn't get that too. Yeah, that um, that was recently announced, and so I jumped on that. Um, some of the fine Kevin Smith films also uh, got the uh, behind-the-scenes treatment and, and whatnot, so I got some of those. And But I, I do get some online stuff because if I'm flying somewhere, I do like to just you know, pop out the iPad or the laptop and watch a film. Well, see, I've got Vudu, which is a V-U-D-U. And that's where, you know, if, if I buy something that has a digital version, I get it, I dump it onto Vudu. Yeah, I got a bunch of stuff uh, out there in the cloud somewhere, which it may disappear someday, but I still got the discs. <laughs> I do that too. The, the Vudu option is nice uh, with the bonus disc and whatnot. Um it's it's good. Um, I tell you guys what, we can go on and on about media, uh, digital and otherwise, but it is that time in the program where we have our sensor sweep and, and Karen may be talking about a DVD, a Blu-ray, maybe even a VHS tape. We don't know. Could be a picture flip book. That's, that was the earlier movie. We just flipped that picture <laughs> I, book. I got some, so I got some Betamax master. tapes in the basement. <laughs> You master. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of surprises in Bob's basement, kids. So uh, a couple of those those old uh, Super Eight movies that used to super like condensed eight. versions of the films. Yeah, six minute version of Star Wars. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but uh, we digress to the to the censor sweep uh, reconnaissance officer Karen. What do you have to share with us this time? Well, and speaking of Star Wars, since as some people have said, it's always usually about Star Trek or Star Wars. <laughs> um, I have a new book just came out uh, this month, which is Secrets of the Force, the complete uncensored, unauthorized oral history of Star Wars. Ooh. This is by Edward Gross and Mark A. Altman. Now, these fine gentlemen have produced a number of uh, oral histories of shows we love, like all the Star Trek shows. Uh, they did uh, uh, James Bond. They did um, Battlestar Galactica. I have read the Star Trek one, which is very, very good. And I just started reading this one, uh, Star Wars, which is really great. They get a, they interview a lot of different folks, and they go chronologically uh, through the history of Star Wars, starting with the first film, and then all the way through the latest stuff. And it's just kind of neat to go back and, and hear from the people who were involved with, you know, making these films, people who knew George Lucas. I mean, reading stuff about how, like, yeah, George Lucas wrote the first draft of Apocalypse Now. I mean, there, there's all this stuff in there that is also peripheral to Star Wars, but, you know, you get all the details about how he started, you know, thinking of putting together Star Wars, his connections to Francis Ford Coppola, you know, all this stuff that he had to go through. But it's it's instead of a narrative form, it's all people, you know, telling their parts of the story, whether they were uh, somebody involved in, you know, uh, 
production, whether they were a friend, whether they were an actor, what have you. So, um, and it, it reads really well, reads really fast. And so a very enjoyable book. So again, uh, you can get this, you know, from the usual places, Amazon or probably your local bookseller if you have a, a good deal with them. So anyway. And this is still being published? Yes, this just came still out. Still in print? Oh, okay. It just came out. It's a big old whopping, probably two-inch thick hardback book from, uh, let's say, St. Martin's Press. Oh, that's a spicy meatball. It's a big baby. <laughs> that the baby is Let a big baby. Let me ask you guys this. Uh, do you have any books uh, on digital format? Yes. Yes. But Back. the stuff I really like to read, I get in physical form. Hmm. I think I had a, one of those Kindles one time, <laughs> and I read Tarzan of the Tarzan of the Apes on a Kindle. I think that's the only uh, book I actually read on a Kindle. Though. Interesting. I I too most of my my books are actual paper books. Um, I do have some uh, graphic novels. Every once in a while, Amazon will have a sale mm-hmm. um, on some graphic novels for like a buck or two. Yeah. Uh, I got a couple of books. Um, but yeah, the most, uh, you know, again, if you're traveling uh, for hours on a plane, it's nice to have, you know, m- movies and, and reading material at your fingertips. Yeah, I like to have that kind of stuff on my tablet. Yeah. but And if it's a book I'm not sure about, I may just get it on my tablet. Yeah. yeah. But I, I can tell you guys, I know Bob's got a lot of books done in that basement as well as movies. <laughs> uh, not in the basement. Books are actually the in the living room and... One, two, three, four bookshelves worth of books back in the Monster Garage. Oh, okay. Okay. Excellent. Well, my friends, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for watching on YouTube. Uh, Until we meet again. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8, signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. Well, that was a bit of a snapper, wasn't it?
so I think that um, birds are very useful animals. They make awfully good dinners. <laughs>